Welcome to Topless Water, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of water with those making waves. My name is Todd Botler, and I'm your host for Topless Water. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Texas with Water and the Texas Water Journal. If you listen to this podcast, you may recall that I spoke with Dr. Joe Underhill, the director of the River Semester at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 2020. Now, that discussion was about a group of college students and professors starting in Minnesota and paddling all the way down the Mississippi River or over the course of a semester. So since then, I've connected with the Riverfield Studies Network, which is a community of practice that aims to advance undergraduate biology education and support healthy river ecosystems through inclusive, immersive, interdisciplinary, field-based education. That's how I connected with my guest today, Dr. Danielle Perry. Danielle Perry is a water resource geographer and assistant professor at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona. She's part of the School of Earth and Sustainability and is director of the Free Flowing Rivers Lab. Danielle, welcome and thank you for being part of Talkless Water. Thank you, Todd. I'm happy to be here with you today. Great. So let's start out with your background in water. How did you first become involved with water? Well, uh, I grew up in Florida on uh, an island in a lake surrounded by rivers that flow out to the Gulf of Mexico uh, that are home to the endangered manatee. And oh, I, wow. I used to swim with manatees as a kid growing up. And Oh, my gosh. Spent my life in the water. Uh, so, I mean, that's really where it started. Um, and then I became a river guide uh, in my in my teens, early twenties and, uh, and, and working as a river guide, uh, got me really interested in river advocacy and river research. So where were you a a river guide? Uh, the first place I commercially guided was actually on the Rio Grande (sighs) outside of Taos, New Mexico. Okay. Interesting. Well, you know, I've I've had the uh, opportunity to get involved with a lot of uh, discussions about the Rio Grande over the last couple of years, and um, you're up there near the uh, the beginning of it. I know it starts in Colorado, but it's it's not, I guess, too far from where you were. No, pretty close to the headwaters. Um, so I worked on the Rio Grande and Chama. And back then, uh, I did some volunteer work doing restoration projects, replanting cottonwood trees on, on the wild and scenic Chama River and learned a lot about wild and scenic policy at that point in time. That's great. I've been there. They used to have a historic railway and, and train that you could take that would kind of go through some of the natural area. And it was, you know, an old locomotive engine. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I can't remember. I think I was maybe in high school when, I, when we did that. It's still there. Great time of year to do it with the fall colors. I'll bet. I'll bet. So tell us about the free-flowing river slab. All right. Uh, the free-flowing river slab is... Uh, 
uh, a lab, research lab at NAU where the graduate students, PhD students, master's students, and undergraduate students and I all do research related to some aspects of rivers, whether that's looking at conservation policy or river restoration uh, priorities. Um, I have some associate associates that are part of the lab as well, other faculty who do research with the students in there. Um, and we do we do all kinds of projects. So a few that just finished up was um, I could talk about are looking at uh, assessing the potential resilience of rivers to climate change here in the desert Southwest region. Uh, to understand where we should be focusing conservation efforts because we can't protect every river. And with climate change, um, not every river, river is going to maintain its flow. Uh, not every river is going to continue to provide the same kind of habitat uh, for the native species. So understanding which rivers will maintain their flow and the right types of vegetative assemblages on the shores and the right kind of uh, species diversity can really help to inform advocacy efforts as well as federal land management efforts in terms of, of where to focus their very limited dollars and, and human resources. Uh, another another study that we just completed um, was assessing dam sites for potential removal and river restoration in the 10 Western states uh, to also inform efforts on where to folk, you know, to inform conservation efforts. So once a dam is removed and a river is restored, then you can put some sort of policy on it to protect its free flow into the future. Uh, which is really important as the climate is changing because we have dammed and diverted most of the rivers in the West. And so one way to ensure biodiversity um, persists in these rivers is to actually restore those rivers. So the Texas Water Journal published an article in 2020 about uh, dam removals in Texas, which, you know, there really haven't been many. Um uh, but I'm interested, you know, where do you kind of see in terms of the trends? You know, I, I read about a lot of removals that have happened in the, you know, eastern United States and, you know, how those rivers are, are coming back. But I guess I hear more of a focus on projects in the future being out west. Yeah, you're right. There, there, dams are coming out all over the place, and this is the decade of restoration. So we're going to see a lot more dam removals over the course of this decade, um, and a lot of old dams, very old dams in the eastern United States, hundreds of years old, have been removed and those rivers restored. And and now we've got dams out west that are over 100 years old, and it's time for them to come out too because they're obsolete, they're blocking fish passage. Um, they, it's not easy to retrofit those dams to add fish passage, and as we're seeing declines in really important anadromous fish species like salmon um, that have multi-million dollar industries that depend on them, um, dam removal is one way to ensure uh, the persistence of those species in the environment. Um, 
And we've seen some dams come out in Washington State and Oregon and California to for that purpose. Uh, and the, there, you know, there's a proposal to remove the four lower snake dam rivers uh, in the Columbia River system to help restore the salmon runs, which in turn has some trophic cascade effects on the the orcas out in the ocean. Uh, and, and so that type of removal can have some some really impactful, positive uh, results for the ecosystem that is pretty imperiled at this point in time. We've got to do something major there to help those fish. <laughs> yeah, you know, as a someone who worked at a, a river uh, authority for, you know, almost two decades, there's a, uh, there's a tendency by water managers to look at all dams as, as monuments instead of tools. But, uh, you know, there really are tools and, you know, uh, not our, every tool um, is still useful. And it's, it seems logical that we have, you know, some reevaluation of, of, dams. And uh, that doesn't mean that all of them are going to come out. I think that's what some folks, particularly people who are concerned about water supplies and and flood control, think that that means all the large dams are going to come out. But I think it's maybe more of a practical approach. I mean, this, I guess, is a question for you. It seems like there are there are clearly some that really, you know, don't serve the, their uh, original purpose and maybe not uh, are providing that much of a, a benefit anymore, and and uh, removing them is a, a much greater benefit. Absolutely, uh, you, you really have to weigh the costs and benefits. And when you think about all the money that gets pumped into trying to mitigate the impacts of dams on species like salmon, uh, and we're not really seeing that those efforts are 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 benefiting the fish in the way that they were designed to do, it's actually more cost effective to take the dams out and restore the river and find other modes of transportation, um, which is the case in the in the Columbia River system. Um, but, you know, in the case of smaller dams here, we, we took out a, an old dam on Fossil Creek in Arizona and restored the river. And then it was designated wild and scenic a couple years after. And it's now this teeming oasis in the middle of the desert where it's just brimming with wildlife and it's a place for people to go swim. And when you live in the desert, there are very few places that you can actually enjoy those opportunities. And that dam was previously providing energy for the mining industry. And we we have other types of energy now. We have wind and solar coming on the grid all the time. We have a nuclear power plant here. Uh, we, we don't need those old small dams. We have alternative energy sources. So as we see more of those truly green, renewable alternative energy sources come on the grid, that's an opportunity to take out some of those old, small um, hydropower dams that really no longer serve their purpose. Well, I can tell you, you really love rivers, and I'm guessing that's maybe why you decided to devote your career to rivers. Um, Tell us a little bit about that and also the kind of threats that you're most you know, focused on in terms of, of rivers. 
Yeah. Uh, well, rivers are integrators, right? They connect mountains with oceans. They move the sediment that um, and the nutrients that are used in the floodplains to grow food. They provide habitat for all kinds of species, like I was just mentioning, and from macro benthic invertebrates that feed the fish that the fisher people like to go out and and harvest um all the way up through bears right and elk that depend on uh riverine hab corridors for their habitat at different parts of their life cycles um they they do provide transportation routes for people and there are places where we like to go recreate and and Groups of people, indigenous peoples in particular, find their sense of spirituality, right? Their cultures are rooted in rivers. Um, so for all those reasons, um, rivers are a great thing to study and, and they're a great thing to protect. Um, and some of the key threats is, you know, because rivers are the main freshwater source for billions of people around the world, um, they're really highly sought after for drinking water. They're, they're used in industry. They're used in irrigated agriculture. They're used for energy production. Um, and those, those uses are often in conflict with biodiversity and cultural uses. And um, with so many people depending on the water, there's, there's often conflicting reasons, right? The lack of the lack of integrated planning and management for rivers is probably the biggest threat that we have uh, in our river systems uh, because you have all those competing uses and people are not talking across the table about how to balance out the the ecological needs with the social needs and the economic needs. Um, and especially when you take into consideration that climate change is changing the availability of water in our rivers, the timing and the, the quantity and even the quality of water in the rivers, that, that lack of integration, integrated planning is probably the biggest threat. So, okay, switching from rivers to the River Field Study Network, um, tell me what that is. Okay, so RIVER stands for the River-Based Immersive Education and Research Field Studies Network. And this is an NSF-funded research collaboration network for undergraduate biology education. And the, the purpose of the network is to transform education through uh, these immersive interdisciplinary river and watershed programs. And specifically, we are expanding the network to communicate and coordinate research and training and educational activities across all kinds of boundaries. So across disciplinary boundaries between biologists, ecologists, geologists, geographers, et cetera, um, between organizational boundaries, um, different types of institutional boundaries, um, and even ge geographic boundaries. The idea is to, to collaborate across the country between academics and nonprofits and um, river managers uh, to address 
all sorts of different concerns in being able to offer field-based courses so that we can train the next generation of river professionals, river scientists. So, uh, in my background, when I was in graduate school, I spent a summer at the University of Michigan Biological Station in northern Michigan and, uh, you know, had a chance there. And also at, uh, I was at the Duke Marine Lab, too, for one summer. Um, so I had a lot of experience at, at one point with field studies and uh, really thought that they uh, were uh, you know, a great way to educate. Um, so why don't you tell us what you think are important about field studies? Yeah, well, and there's nothing better than being in a place and getting your hands dirty or wet in the case of rivers and getting that experiential education. Um, learning from a textbook is fine, but when you get into the field, you're actively learning through these immersive experiences. And um, this is what students really need to be able to transform them into actual scientists who have on the ground practical experience and uh, an understanding of the world around them. Well, I have heard that field studies are in decline um, in America, and I guess maybe that's even before uh, the pandemic came along. So I'm just I'm just curious about that. What do you think's causing that? Oh, there's a there's a lot of different aspects that factor into why we don't have um, the resources necessary to offer field courses uh, as much as we did in the past. There's a lack of funding. Um, the funding isn't prioritized for getting students in the field. I mean, there's transportation costs associated with that. There's there's risk assessment. Universities have become very risk averse. Um, there's administrative red tape. There's faculty that just don't have the time they would like to offer the courses. Um, uh, and so, it, you know, all those things together can can really be deterrents for being able to offer uh, these types of experiences. And yet these are the these are the key experiences that these students really need um, to set them apart, to prepare them for the real world, for the job market, for understanding the field that they're trying to be professionals in. And so the River Field Studies Network, uh, I guess, is in, in part designed to help with, I guess, overcoming some of those uh, obstacles that are that are in the way of of universities spending more time and effort on field studies. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, we have six broad objectives with our network. Um, the first one is building instructor capacity for river field studies. So we did a national survey to understand, you know, where are people offering courses where they're taking students into the field in some way to be working work on or around rivers, whether they're just going there for a few hours or they're spending multiple days on the river like the like the trip that you were discussing earlier. Um, 
there's no need to reinvent the wheel. We found that there are hundreds of classes being offered across the country. Um, and actually, while field studies might be in decline, there are more river-based courses being offered all the time because people are understand that we really do need to study our rivers. Um, and so one of the options one of the objectives is to train a new group of instructors every year in how to offer a river field course. Uh, we will be, when we already have, developed educational materials for this network that we're actually making available uh, online on our website. Uh, so it will be uh they're open source materials that anyone who wants to offer a field course can go to the website and download those materials. Uh, and so one of our objectives is actually to develop these materials and, and curate and the, them in perpetuity. Um, uh, another objective is to broaden participation in field studies in river field studies. So it's, well known that um, the STEM fields are not very diverse in terms of the faculty who were teaching the courses all the way down to the students who feel empowered to take those courses and pursue those careers. And so we are trying to diversify, diversify participation in field studies by making it um, more inclusive, more accessible to people who have different physical abilities um, by and training instructors on this type of inclusive pedagogy and using technology even to help people access uh, rivers that might not otherwise be able to do so. Um, we're building partnerships with different organizations and communities to help promote inclusion. Uh, we've got all kinds of exciting opportunities coming along in that realm. Um, on our website, you can find a whole uh, catalog of information, webinars, articles, trainings on uh, grant funding for people who are interested in field studies or teaching field studies to make them inclusive. But another objective is promoting safety in the field. Um, and so by doing risk assessment and teaching about safety, when rivers are moving water and it, ha it has a whole different level of risk associated with it. And so, um, so we are training instructors on river safety and providing, eventually we will be providing um, materials that are training materials on our website. Um, Obviously, we have a website, which is housing all of this infrastructure, and that's another one of our objectives. And then um, assessing our, our work and assessing other field studies so that we can constantly improve them. And the aim is that through this network, uh, we can work collectively to help institutions understand the need for these types of courses and try to um, expand the offering of field courses instead of continuing with that trend of seeing field courses decline. So I imagine as an advocate for field study courses, you could probably uh, think of some 
some moment when it kind of clicked for your students when you had them out in the field and you and you know was you know a, a great example for yourself uh, that hey I'm reaching these students in a way uh, that I it's hard to do in the classroom. Absolutely, um, I I teach a. Um, uh, part of a course that I teach. It's an introductory environmental sustainability course and mostly freshmen take them out into the Flagstaff area every year to teach them about Flagstaff's water, past, present, and future. And we don't have a lot of rivers here, but um, we have like perennial streams, but we have a lot of ephemeral stream channels here. Uh, and we rely on those to provide water to the city of Flagstaff. And so thinking about that water bottle that they're filling up at their faucet in the morning or in the water fountain in the hallway on campus and then going out into the forest and seeing these ephemeral stream channels and how some of them are degraded and how some of them are being restored so that they can continue to um filter water into our local reservoir, which is Lake Mary, where the city of Flagstaff gets its drinking water. And the students see that connection between the forests and the stream beds and that reservoir and then their tap and they're like, wow, I never really thought about where my water is coming from and and all of the process between getting it from the lake to the water treatment facility through the pipes into their sink is a real aha moment for people who might've grown up in a city and have no idea that their water is coming from these forests high in the mountains. You know, kind of as our, our last um, major question here, you know, I'm interested in what you think about the, you know, the potential that, field studies and this kind of experiential learning can have to change our relationship with rivers. And, and I know everybody thinks about, you know, really rivers in the Western United States, the, you know, the Columbia and the snake and the Colorado and all that. Uh, but, you know, just, you know, all over the country where there are rivers everywhere. Right. <laughs> and, you know, programs like this at universities, all over the country to me seem like they could really help us uh, to change how we look at our rivers. Yeah. So, I mean, even though the grant is funded through NSF, through the undergraduate biology education directorate, I think it's, um, I can't think of any discipline that doesn't find some that couldn't find some way to integrate rivers into its curriculum. I'm a geographer, I'm not a biologist. Uh, And so to say that in another way, rivers are integrators of not just the landscape, they're integrators of disciplines and people. Um, They rivers inspire music and art and literature and engineers dam and divert and restore rivers and chemists study water quality and historians think about the role of rivers in important moments in time. Um, So bringing people from all these different various disciplines together on the river is a way to come up with 
interdisciplinary solutions that we need for resolving some of the many issues that are facing our rivers um, from the well, fresh water crisis to the biodiversity crisis to, you know, pollution problems and overallocation, um, and which are kind of at the heart of these crises. I recall from uh, my interview uh, with Joe Underhill that Augsburg actually had, uh, I guess, the English and the history department involved in their river semester trip. And so that's a, you know, a direct example of what you're saying. Absolutely. Yep. Rivers have a, a very important place in in the history of the United States um, and, and the world. Uh, and so um, they are at the heart of our culture, really. Great. Well, so let's tell our listeners, how can they find out about the Riverfield Studies Network and the Free Flowing Rivers Lab? Uh, well, the Riverfield Studies Network has a website. It's riverfieldstudies.com. And the Free Flowing Rivers Lab, you can find out by uh, searching for me on the, on the Internet or looking at NAU's School of Earth and Sustainability website. And I will uh, add those links to the description of the podcast. So someone who's listening and didn't write that down, uh, you could just go and look at the podcast episode description and those links will be in there. Excellent. Thanks so much. Danielle, thank you for joining us today. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, I did too, Todd. Thank you for having me here. Well, that wraps up Topless Water. My guest today was Danielle Perry, an assistant professor at Northern Arizona University and the director of the Free Flowing Rivers Lab. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in and to say that if you enjoyed the episode today, consider giving it a like. My name's Todd Butler. Let's talk water again soon. <laughs>